Amen. Thank you, uh, Abe, Sam. His love shall never end. That's a good Valentine's Day song. Happy Hallmark Day to you. Hope you are enjoying today, and it's my privilege and honor to uh, open the word with you today. I'm not into game shows much. My wife and I uh, record and watch Jeopardy every day, but that's kind of my limit. And that might be because my mom was just hugely into game shows. I, I grew up watching $25,000 Pyramid. There's, there's been inflation, I understand, since then. Um, the Hollywood Squares and, and uh, Name That Tune, and on and on it went. We, we watched lots of game shows, uh, enough for a lifetime, I think. But one that she really liked was The Price is Right. And I don't know if you've seen that, but you know people are guessing the prices of various things. And then if they win... Then they're given this choice, you know, you got door number one, door number two, door number three, and behind one of the doors, spectacular prize, and behind the other doors, less spectacular prizes. And, and so you have a choice to make. And that is kind of the model that I want us to approach the theme I'm looking at today with, because sometimes we hear preaching on the Christian life. In fact, we hear lots of preaching on the Christian life, and justly so. There's much in the New Testament about the Christian life. And sometimes that preaching sounds like the Christian life looks like uniform, sustained victory over sin. And sometimes the Christian life looks like a daily grind, a struggle. And sometimes the Christian life looks like you are empowered by the Spirit for spectacular service. And sometimes the impression that we might get, whether we're hearing a sermon or reading a text, is that it sort of makes it's up to us whether we choose door number one, door number two, or door number three. And so what I would like to do this morning is briefly display before you three texts in the New Testament, three very different texts, each of which describes the Christian life, and then perhaps at the end you can choose door number, no, that's not where I'm going with this, and see how these actually tie together. So it's not exactly an exposition of a paragraph. I apologize for that. I, I, I asked Dr. Brock's forgiveness in advance for how all the homiletical rules will be broken this morning. So would you turn with me, please, to a Pauline view of the Christian life in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Here's a little context. In the first four chapters of Romans, as you know, Paul has established his thesis. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then he has established the universal depravity of mankind in chapters 118 to 320. And then from 321 through chapter 4, he has shown us the solution and its justification. It's the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Our depravity is overcome by the work of Christ. We are saved from wrath. And then in chapter 5, he begins to develop the hope that all believers have. A theme that is going to run from chapter 5 through chapter 8. And in particular, the first 11 verses say, listen, you can have great confidence if you have been justified because you have been saved from wrath and you will be saved forever. You shall never be out of favor with God. So then we come to chapter 6 and Paul begins to discuss the Christian life. And he does so by asking, if you are in God's favor and shall never experience wrath, does that free you up to sin? Does it free you up to sin? Does the Christian look, life look like a get-out-of-hell-free card? He answers that question in this chapter in two sections. Notice how in verse 1, he says, what shall we say then? 
All right, what conclusion should we draw from this gospel of acceptance and forgiveness? Shall we continue in sin? Yeah, we've been sinning since our earliest memory, and now we're saved. Can we just go on sinning? Because now we're forgiven. Can we continue in sin that grace may abound? Grace is unmerited favor. Well, that's what I need, so I can just go on sinning and get more and more grace. He's going to answer that question in 2 through 14. And then look at verse 15. What then? What's the next wrong conclusion we might draw? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? You'll notice that his answer to both of these questions is, of course not. Or in the King James, God forbid. That would be a terrible conclusion to draw. And so he is going to develop a theology that says your salvation is not for the purpose of further sinning. In fact, somebody who's truly saved could never draw that conclusion. His argument in chapter 6 is going to boil down to four verbs. I'm giving us a flyover. All right, this is not a 30,000-foot flyover where we barely see the terrain, but we're not knocking down every weed as we go through. It's sort of like a Piper Cub flyover. All right, I want, us, I want you to see the terrain and the key arguments, but we're not going to get lost in the details or our time will be lost in the details. But notice these four verbs. The first one is no. The second is reckon. The third is yield. And the fourth is obey. Let's just track this real quick. What do you need to know in order to understand that you were not justified to free you up to sin? That sinning is not a proper response to salvation. Well, let's pick up here in verse 2. How shall we and I hope that's you and I. That is, I hope it's true of you that at a point in your life, you asked Jesus Christ to become your Savior so that his work became yours. Paul is assuming that for his readers. How shall we that are, and what's the next word? Dead. We are dead to sin. Well, how could we live any longer therein? And immediately, the Romans are going to say, Paul, you don't know me well. I, I am anything but dead to sin. You should have heard the conversation I had with my wife this morning. And then he explains how we know that. Don't you know, know you not, that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. So Paul is saying something about the atonement. When Jesus Christ died on the cross as the God-man, our sins, all of our sins, Past, present, future. Or for you, past, present, future. All of those sins were put onto Jesus Christ so that he died the penalty that they deserved. And because all of my sins were put on Jesus Christ and he died that penalty, I will never die for those sins. And Paul says, therefore, you are dead to those sins. That's a beautiful truth. And it was pictured by our baptism. You remember when you got baptized? That baptism, a preacher took you and lowered you like this, where you were totally out of control. You were in his hands. He lowered you into water. You know what happens if you stay down there? Yeah, you die. And this was symbolizing our death with Jesus Christ, that he descended into death. And our baptism pictures our descent into death with him. Verse 4. Therefore... 
we are buried with him by baptism into death. Now, he's not saying that baptism actually associates us with Christ. It pictures that association. We know that because this is the first time he's brought up baptism in the whole book. And he's already established how we're saved. It's by faith alone in Christ alone. But that baptism symbolized what happened when I got saved. I was buried by baptism into his death. And then the preacher said, lifted me out of the water. Just as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So my union with Christ in his death on the cross pictures my death to sin and my being raised to walk in a new life. And then he explores that union with Christ theme in verses 6 through 10. Again, there's a lot here, verses 5 through 10. I'm just going to hit the high points. He says, my former person, who I was by nature, who you were when you were born, was planted in the likeness of his death, verse 5. Our old man, our former man, our previous man, was crucified with him. The body of sin was destroyed. Verse 8, we are dead with Christ. Verse 9, death no more has dominion over us. So there's a death that takes place. My old person died. And so, verse 7 says, if you're dead, you are freed from sin. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? We are freed from sin. We now, verse 4, walk in newness of life. Verse 5, we are in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 6, we no longer serve sin. Verse 8, we live with him. Verse 9, we are no longer dominated by sin. Verse 10, we live unto God. That's the gospel. That's what we know. Do you know this morning that you're united with Christ and that sin has once and for all been defeated. Well, the key then is the next verb. And that's in verse 11. Paul only gives one verse to this verb, but it's crucial. Likewise, as a result of all this teaching, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. You know, if you ask me to give you information about a healthy lifestyle, I could speak at some length about what it looks like. Because I know, I mean, you can't live in 21st century America without being inundated with what a healthy lifestyle looks like. But when does it begin to benefit me? When I reckon it to be true for myself. All right, that is when I say, you know what? That would make me healthier. You probably could write an essay on what it takes to be a successful student. But how do you get from knowing to the next step? Well, you've got to reckon it. You've got to believe it for yourself. You have to apply it. It's got to be personally true. And Paul says, here's this theology. Sin is dead. You are dead to sin. Do you believe you are dead to sin? Do you believe Christ dealt with your sin problem once and for all? Well, if you do, it will lead to the third verb. And that third verb you see in verse 13. Yield. Don't yield yourselves, your members, your body, your emotions, your thinking, your choices, everything about you. 
This is the same verb. Are you with me there in verse 13? That verb yield is the same verb you find in Romans 12, 1, present. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Yield your members as instruments of God for righteousness. This follows. So I'm teaching my teenager how to drive. I am so glad those days are gone. Because my wife would not even climb in the car until they were well on their way. All right, so I, that, that was dad's job. And, uh, you know, they're getting better. We're not swerving so much. They're not, they're not going down the road and cutting within five inches of the car next to it. And, and at some point, I know that they're ready. But then I've got to reckon them ready. All right, not only do they have all the requisite skills, but they're ready. But then what's the key step? Yielding the wheel. <laughs> Here it goes. And now he's in a position to actually drive. And that leads to the fourth verb, which is obey. Turns out obedience is the theme of the second part of the chapter, verses 16 through 23. You are a slave. You used to be, your former person was a slave to sin. Before you got saved, before Jesus Christ ended the reign of sin in your life by his death on the cross and your faith into him, your former man, everything you did was in servitude to sin. But now you're a slave to righteousness. The verse that links yielding and obeying is verse 14. Don't miss verse 14. For, because, sin shall not have dominion over you. Now, my students who have taken Romans know the answer to this question. Presumably, at least they know it. They have to reckon it true in their... Is this a command? Sin shall not have dominion. Do not let it have dominion. Or is this a future tense verb giving you a promise? Command or promise? It's a promise. Sin shall not. It will not. Its ability to dominate you is dead. It's done. It's over. So here's door number one. You live in a realm of acceptance. You do not have to earn God's favor by any means. And because you live in that realm of acceptance, faith is the victory. All right, so door number one says faith is the victory. You are united with Christ. It is a fact that you must know, you must believe, and you must follow out. Your obedience does not secure the victory. Your obedience reflects the victory. You live like you live because the victory's been won. And so, one version of the Christian life is joy, confidence, and a high level of success because, hey, the battle's already been won. I like door number one. Let's, let's look at another uh, picture of the Christian life. Now, this is a very different text. I'll, I'll wait a minute for you to find it. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 7? Totally different tone here. A little bit of context. Paul has been talking about the law throughout the book of Romans. And frankly, it has not looked very good. The law condemns sinners. It shows us how evil we are. And justification was somebody else fulfilling the law on our behalf. But you know what? God's righteous standard, his 
perfect holy nature. Now, the Mosaic law is gone, but God's holiness and his demands for perfection, they did not end the day you got saved. It's Christians who are told, be holy as he is holy. He's still demanding perfection. And so Paul's got to address this law thing. And he does here in chapter 7. Now, I'm going to skip the first six verses. Uh, the first six verses, frankly, are kind of the glue that tie all this together. So let's, let's leave it aside for now. But he begins to talk about the law, verses 7 through 25 of this chapter. There are two sections, just like there were in chapter 6. 7, 7 through 13, is how the law condemns unbelievers. Verse 13 is a bit of a, a transition. And then in the rest of the chapter, 13 through 25... He talks about the role of the law in the life of a believer. So let's track, trace this a little bit. The law does not help us obey. It doesn't help us obey. There's a famous little poem. Nobody knows who exactly it comes from. Run, John, run, the law commands. but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Well, the problem is not with the law. Look at verse 12. The law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. The fact that unbelievers are spiritual cripples doesn't make it the law's fault that they can't run. Forgive this illustration especially those of you who are Romans and have heard it. But when uh, my wife and I were first married, we lived in an apartment that we shared with a whole bunch of Clemson college students. And some of them were no doubt nice people, but they lived very dirty lives. And we could not keep our apartment clean. In particular, we could not keep the roaches out of our apartment. This is the South, where roaches are an ever-present reality. And you have to work very hard to stay ahead of the roaches. And we never could. We never could. Uh, for the one year we were in that nasty little apartment, if you woke up in the middle of the night and you walked in to get a cup of water, you had to make a, you had to make a strategic decision, do I turn the light on or not? Because if you do, you're going to see all the roaches, and, and they're scattering. And uh, they were places you didn't want them to be. You, you sort of develop a lifestyle of rinsing everything before you use it. Question. Did the light cause the roaches? No, no. Lights reveal roaches, right? And while at times I was young and immature and I would choose to leave the light off because ignorance is bliss, it's really better to know they're there, right? I mean, the law is serving a very useful purpose. It is helping sinners know they're sinners. Verse 7. What do we say then? Is the law itself the cause of sin? Of course not. God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. The law is helping me figure out my problem. So unbelievers need the law. They need the condemnation the law brings. The details in 7 through 11 are kind of tricky. I'm not going to dive into them a whole lot. But it's clear that the unbeliever desperately needs to know he's a sinner. But knowing he's a sinner will not solve the problem. Turning the light on never once eliminated the roaches. Never does. And so then we get to the second part of the chapter, the transition then at verse 13. Was then that which is good 
made death unto me. Of course not, God forbid. It's sin that's the problem. Sin, that it might appear sin, that we can figure out what it is, worked death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful, for we know, and notice the transition here, the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. In verses 7 through 13, Paul has used nine past tense verbs. That's what I was. In verses 14 through 25, he's going to use 26 present tense verbs. This is what I am. Now, there's a lot of debate on this topic, but I believe he's describing the Christian life. Your Christian life, my Christian life, his own Christian life. Paul's been a believer for 25 years when he writes this. And look what he says. It's kind of disturbing. Verse 15 says, I don't want to do evil, but I do. I want to do good. Verse 15 says, I don't want to do evil. Verse 16 says, I don't want to do evil. Verse 19 says, I don't want to do evil. Verse 15 says, I want to do good. Verse 18 says, I want to do good. Verse 19 says, I want to do good. Verse 22 says, I delight in the law of God. I mean, that perfect standard, it reflects God's nature. I think it's wonderful. He's a regenerate person, but he does evil anyway. I can't figure out how to perform what is good, verse 18. My tendency to sin, he calls it his flesh, is always present, dogging my steps, verse 21. There's a war going on inside me, verse 23, between the law of my members and the law of my mind. I am wretched. I long for deliverance, verse 24. Now, some scholars argue that this could not possibly be describing the Christian life because it's so depressing. It's so defeated. It must be describing an unbeliever. But look at verse 25. Don't miss this. Paul has been describing this incredibly uphill climb against his innate sinfulness. And then he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I shall be delivered from this body of death. Is he describing salvation? Well, no, because look what he says next. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. He's describing right now. So what's the point of this? The law is not the solution to our sin problem. The law was not the solution for unbelievers, and the law is not the solution for believers. You will not overcome sin by keeping law. We don't have any innate or natural capacity to do what pleases God. Whenever we rely on ourselves, we will feel condemned, inadequate, and never making the grade. We will never feel like we're good enough. Some of you probably enjoy looking in mirrors. Most of us find them rather off-putting. I I avoid them at all costs. But the problem's not with the mirror. We need a spiritual makeover. Our success, our victory is only through Jesus Christ. So door number two is a model of the Christian life that we might call, don't let your failures defeat you. Faith is the victory, or don't let your failures defeat you. Even in your sanctification, the demand is holiness, and the measure of holiness is God. And in ourselves, we will never meet that standard. Why? Because we have sinfulness still hanging to us. We are flesh, and it won't go away. 
our best efforts are going to be dogged by flesh. And if Paul could say that, I suspect I should say that. There is no clear sailing to victorious Christian living. About time you think you've beaten something, it will rise up and bite you again. So expect conflict, expect temptation, expect struggle. And don't try to earn your way out of it. Trust your way through it. And then there's a third model. All right, you're going to have to find this text. I'll give you a moment. Our third picture of the Christian life is in, anybody want to guess? Romans 8, yes, cross the page. Here's Paul again. Now, this chapter is a robust completion of this discussion of hope. And it's magnificent about the assurance we can have as believers. The confidence we can have that if we are saved, we will never be separated from the love of God because there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The verses that I want us to focus on are the first 13. Because again, Paul is describing the Christian life. And verse 1 says... There is therefore now. What is the now referring to? The life he was just leading in chapter 7. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've been justified, you are in Christ. And then he tells us why. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from that old law that only led to sin and death. There is a new principle at work in me. And notice how he describes it. He describes it in terms of the Holy Spirit. Up until this point in Romans, we're halfway through the book, and he's mentioned the Holy Spirit one time. In fact, it's in that little paragraph we skipped. But in this chapter, he's going to mention him 19 times. That is suddenly... Paul wants us to be thinking about the Holy Spirit and what the Spirit does in our lives. Continuing, because what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemns sin in the flesh, in order that, why did Christ atone for our sins? provide the sin offering we needed, in order that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. We, who no longer walk after the flesh, we walk after the Spirit. There's the Christian life that Paul envisages. We no longer walk after our sinfulness. We walk in the power of God himself, the Holy Spirit, who has come to take up residence in our lives. And the righteous requirement, literally, that the law made. The law said, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And as unbelievers, we couldn't even begin to do that. And now, by God's grace, we can. And the law said, love your neighbors yourself. And I never did that. And now, by God's grace, I can. And the law said, you need to flee idolatry and flee fornication and treasure God. And it gives a whole bunch of commands that we are powerless to do in ourselves. But we're not powerless when the Holy Spirit is present in our lives. And so Paul then contrasts two ways of living in verses 5 through 11. Follow it here. I'm, I'm, this is the Piper Cub flyover, but let's get the highlights. He describes people who are after the flesh, people who are still in their old or former man. They mind the things of their flesh, their attitudes, their thinking 
are dominated by flesh. They are carnally minded, which leads to spiritual death. Their carnal mind, in fact, is at war with God and is totally unable to be subject to God's law. They cannot please God. That's one way to live. But then he contrasts that with another way to live. And that other way to live is after the Spirit. So that if you are after the Spirit, following the Spirit, being led of the Spirit, you mind the things of the Spirit. And notice what he says is that you are one or the other. If you are after the flesh, minding the things of the flesh, at war with God, you are lost. Follow the logic. Verse 8. They that are in the flesh cannot please God, but you, believer, are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit if the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if the Spirit of God doesn't dwell in you, you're not saved. And so we've got these two absolutes. You are living in the flesh, after the flesh, and it's not going to end well for you. Or you are in following after the Spirit and minding the things of the Spirit. And the Spirit, if he is in you, will triumph over everything that's opposed to you. Verse 10. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. And the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from from the dead dwell in you. He that raised up Christ shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. This is not talking about the spiritual resurrection we saw in chapter 6. This is literally, we shall rise because the spirit raised Christ. I would call this picture of the Christian life spirit-empowered triumph over sin. The power to win our daily battles with sin is fully available to us because God himself dwells within us. This is not a fact you believe. It's a power you experience. So, which door do you choose? Door number one, the declared victory of union with Christ. Door number two, continuing frustrating battles with sin, or door number three, the powerful indwelling of the Spirit. Should we vote? The vote has been already made for you. Which door do you get? You get all three prizes. You get all three prizes. That's what the Christian life looks like. It's one picture. Our union with Christ means ultimate victory over sin is guaranteed. Our battle with that sin is going to last our entire life. And if if we keep our eyes on the law, it'll be debilitating. But we can gain victory over particular sins today through the power of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, in Galatians, we see these three truths. You go to Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. The the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. That's Romans 6. I died with Christ. I rise to triumph. Galatians 5, verses 16 through 18. Listen to Paul's language here. It's much briefer, but it's the same theology. 5.16 says, that would be in Galatians for it to work. This I say then, walk in the Spirit. And you will not live after the desires of your flesh. If you be led of the Spirit, verse 18, you are not under the law. That's Romans 8. And verse 17, directly between those two verses. Is your flesh 
Your sinfulness has desires that are opposed to the spirit, and the spirit has a totally different outcome planned for you than the flesh. They are the contrary to one to the other so that you are constantly frustrated. So which is it? Frustration or victory or declared righteousness? Yes. The Christian life involves faith that the victory has been won, determination to keep fighting sin and keep our eyes on Christ and off the law and dependence on the power of the Spirit. All three are true at one time and therefore believe all three today. And whatever struggles you're having, you are in Christ and you are empowered by the Spirit. And all three of those things are going to be true till the day you die. You don't have to choose which Christian life. It's, there's only one. And we get all three prizes. Thank you, Lord, for this text, these texts that are really one text. Thank you, Lord, that we died to sin so that we could be married to another, so that the fruit of the Spirit might be developed in our lives. And Lord, we probably need this theology most when we're struggling most because this flesh just won't go away. And yet, Lord, we are in Christ and the Spirit is in us. Help us, Lord, to have a balanced and right view of what the Christian life is going to look like. And I pray that you would give us joy that in this we have hope. We have great hope of victory, ultimate victory, and lots of little victories today and tomorrow and the next. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.